0: like more than 26 to me. (laughs) Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another reading meeting. If you don't know who I am, uh, I'm Molly Ferry Thorne. I'm a postdoc working with Mark Seidenberg right here. This was Mark's video choice for today.
1: I thought it was interesting because it's a Cyrillic alphabet. And from what I could tell, uh, um, a lot of the letters had names, letter names, like and, and, and then not just letter sounds, uh, which uh, of course is a big people discuss about whether to teach letter names or letter sounds. And um, uh, that's another case in which the alt- traditional alphabet song makes use of letter names a lot.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> like
1: there was there a double something in there. And there's a yeah.
0: And there's, uh-huh. there's a couple you're like, this sounds almost familiar. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, and we've also got our guest here today, Margie Gillis, literacy, how, and many other things in her past. So well, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Yeah. Thank you, Molly. And thank you, Mark, for inviting me to join you this Sunday afternoon, this warm Sunday. Uh, Not quite summer yet, but feels like summer. Um, So yeah, I've had a long history as an educator that began uh, many years ago when I decided to become a special ed teacher. I was very, very blessed uh, to study with Isabel Liberman. Probably many of you know who Isabel is or was. um, A phenomenal researcher, and I just happened to be in her master's program at the University of Connecticut. And I, I didn't know a whole lot at that point. I did have my um, undergraduate degree in sociology and elementary education, but I learned 0.00 about how to teach children to read. And I kind of figured that out and knew I had to go and get an advanced degree. And I just, I just got lucky and landed in uh, Isabel's classroom and there were only 10 of us so it was pretty um, intensive master's program she was truly an amazing researcher but she also recognized the importance of applying the research and um, that was critically important obviously because my path forward was really to teach not to um, to teach children not to teach adults necessarily And um, I just had, I just knew that whatever I was learning from her was groundbreaking. And like is true for many people who are in graduate programs, you can, it at the University of Connecticut, there was the ed psych side of the hall. And then there was the special education side of the hall. And they were as diametrically opposed as as it could have been, and, and still is today from what I hear, right? Um, and I was in the ed psych, on the ed psych side of the hall, although I did take a couple of courses in special education and they like completely canceled each other out on some level, but I stuck with Isabel. I stuck with Isabel and knew that that was what I needed to, that was what I needed to follow and learn about. But it was such an incredible experience to reflect back on and know that that wasn't just unique to the University of Connecticut. It's probably plays out even to this day, 45 years later. um, Actually, more than 45, 47 years later, it plays out. Why hasn't that changed? Oh my goodness. Anywho, um, I left there and taught in a, a storage closet in Maine. And literally it was a storage closet with cinder block walls. And it was basically the beginning of PL 94 142 which is um, the least restrictive environment. Um, Make sure that children are integrated with their peers because prior to that, they were in self-contained classrooms a lot of the time. So I brought groups of children into my little storage closet and did the best I could to teach them to read. Um, many of them were dyslexic, although they were not identified as being dyslexic, but I certainly saw the signs of that and knew enough about phonological processing because of course I studied with Isabel Liverman. But she didn't necessarily teach me what it should look like in the classroom. I did have some good practicum experiences, but not enough. You can never have enough really. Um, There's no better you know experience than actually trying to teach yourself and every child you know has different set of needs. And I taught um, in Maine just for one year and then I went to um, Texas because my husband to be happened to be living in Austin and um, I followed him there and Isabel did tell me, she said, if you want to learn more about teaching kids to read and you ever find yourself in Texas, there's a woman named Ayla Cox who teaches something called alphabetic phonics. And I didn't know anything about all any of that. She said it's it's a derivative of Wharton-Gillingham. I'd heard of Wharton-Gillingham. And I didn't do that program right away. I taught um, again in special education resource classrooms um, for five years. And then it turned out that we moved to Dallas and that's where Texas Scottish Rite Hospital is. And I did my alphabetic phonics training there for one year. And then we got transferred again back to Connecticut. And I finished the program at Teachers College with Judith Bursch. And again, very serendipitous because she just started that program. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to leave it behind because I knew I needed to know more. Um, and so it was just fortunate that there was a program at Teachers College. I commuted and and finished up the program. And then I I really spent the next 10 plus years working with kids with significant reading difficulties, including dyslexia, including comprehension difficulties, the whole gamut. And um, then we got moved around a few more times. And in 19, I guess, 95, I started a doctoral program at uh, University of Louisville in special education. And then I came, we came back to Connecticut and I finished the, the program here in Connecticut And just as I was completing the the doctorate, there was a job opening at Haskins Laboratories, which is where Isabel did her research with Don Shankweiler and a host of other amazing people. And the, the job posting was for reading specialists. They were looking for about 12 different people in the state of Connecticut, and this was now 1999. Early to, you know, beginning of 2000, just as the National Reading Panel was being released. And um, they were looking for people to take the research and the findings from the National Reading Panel into the classroom. And they, I was one of 12 people to be, to to do that work. And we worked in kindergarten, first and second grades in three districts in Connecticut, three um, urban districts. And what it was most eye-opening for me and most impactful for me as I started doing that work was working in general education classrooms because my career had really been primarily in special education. Although I spent a fair amount of time in gen ed classrooms because I knew that our my, my students needed to have whatever I was teaching them in the resource room aligning with what was happening in the classroom. That was no no mean feat and still is not easy to do today as we know. And we'll talk more about, I'm sure. But at the time um, I did want to spend time in the gen ed classroom, but I had never been a gen ed teacher. And And I felt I had to say that to the teachers that I was starting to work with and coach. Like I've not walked in your shoes. I've walked in other shoes. I've certainly special ed. Um, is, is a challenging profession too, but working with 25 students and being expected to differentiate instruction for 25 students and do all that, isn't, that must be done to be effective as a classroom teacher is not easy at all. So I really grew to respect um, the role that general ed teacher plays. I have so much respect for that teacher and um, as I do all teachers. and But that's what, where I spent most of my time for those three, three or four years. And then Susan Brady, who was um, at the University of Rhode Island at the time, and I uh, submitted a grant to the Institute of Education Sciences. It was one of the first teacher quality grants um, in the United States. And we were awarded the, a four-year grant to look at first grade reading instruction. And we recruited 120 teachers in nine districts in the state and did that work. Um, As I said, it was a four year grant, but the actual intervention was two years. And um, we had some wonderful experiences, great findings. Uh, We developed some terrific tools to do the coaching work that we continue to do. and when that grant ended in 2007, the monies for this kind of research started to dry up. um, And I could not bear the thought of leaving this work behind, including, you know, seven or eight phenomenal mentors that I had begun to, you know, work with and not begun, actually, some of them I started working with, you know, eight years prior. But all that to say, I decided to start Literacy How um, which is now a not-for-profit company that provides um, professional development for teachers. So can, can you tell us
1: um, what is Literacy House approach to providing um, materials for teachers and education for teachers in service, I assume?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, it its approach really is you know, what, what comes to mind is, is a differentiated approach to working with teachers. And why do I say that? Well, we always focus on the differentiated instruction that we have to provide for our students because we know that they're all in different places um, for lots of different reasons. There's it's no different for teachers really. And so when we do one size fits all professional development, it doesn't work. Uh, for lots of reasons. In many cases, it doesn't necessarily include a coaching element, which I believe, and certainly research has has, uh, you know, has given us evidence to this fact that teachers need that ongoing support. Um, so it's no different. And, and so the embedded coaching that we provide, which I, when I say embedded coaching, we actually have our mentors pushed into teachers' classrooms And it's not just a few times here and there, it's actually we follow as much as we can a coaching sequence. So we start here and we build gradually, just like we talk about explicit systematic sequential instruction for students. We try to do something similar for teachers. And um, yeah, so I'd say that is a big part of it. It's also based on what's called cognitive coaching, which is just like what it sounds, right? It means that we want teachers to reflect on what they're doing and they have to step away from what they're doing and working super hard to take the time to think about what is effective and what isn't and there's you know ways that we can help that happen. But it's certainly a, a process that is embedded and, and it, you know, sort of incorporated into our approach.
1: So, so let me ask you some more details about this because it's, it's important to know about. Um, who participates? Do you work with school districts that are willing, that that mandate that their teachers um, work with you? Uh, is this done in addition to? Uh, uh, Tell us who it is who ends up um, uh, participating, taking advantage of the things that you have to offer, and who pays for it, and things like that. Yeah. And also, I understand the idea of um, uh, adjusting the um, instruction to the level of the teacher, but um, how much instruction are we talking about? How much time are we talking about? And 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 how, how does that actually how does that go?
2: Yeah, it's it's a lot actually. Um, But going back to that IES grant, which we called Mastering Reading Instruction, it was um, two years of embedded coaching for teachers. And we had roughly, it varied from school to school, but around four to six teachers that we spent two years with. So think about that. With one mentor in one day could coach four to six teachers. Some mentors were doing this three or four times a week so they could then coach more teachers. okay? But they had two years um, to spend with the teacher. And the way that we conceptualized doing this was we thought about the simple view of reading, which everybody knows and most people appreciate and value. So we, we broke up the two years into word recognition year one, language comprehension year two. And, um, and then we were hoping that we could also build in the whole idea of consolidation um, across those two domains, because as we all know, the tr- the real difficult part of doing this work is integrating everything, right? It's reading doesn't, work in silos like oh yeah you have your phonemic awareness over here and you have your phonics over here and yet when we're teaching teachers this content you have to break it up that way to some extent to show the progression to show the explicit systematic nature of specifically those constrained skills like phonemic awareness and phonics not as not the same for vocabulary and, and comprehension but the point is this it took it, we had the, the luxury of having two years with a cohort of teachers. And at the end of those two years, the district said, these teachers know so much, and, but only it's just our first grade teachers, our other teachers need to know this, our kindergarten teachers need to know this, our second grade, third grade, et cetera. So what happened to answer your question, Mark, little circuitous route to get there, but, um, districts that felt and val- felt that we helped them immensely, they saw their reading scores improve, and they saw the value in what we were doing. Actually, use their own money to hire us as consultants to continue to do the work. Um, that didn't happen in all nine districts, but I I have not. Gone back and counted, but I would say of the nine districts we've worked in, probably eight out of the nine, over, you know, in successive years. And, and is that is that where your fo- your focus is now? Uh, no, that- not really. There's one district of the nine that ha- that has had continuous uh, support from at the time Haskins when we were at Haskins, and subsequently Literacy Howe. And that district has continued to make gains. It's a larger district with 13 elementary schools. And I was just, I was actually the mentor in in one of those 13 elementary schools. And then subsequently, some of those other schools came on and and at and were added to our group. Um, In other districts, it just it's it honestly varies uh, across the board. Uh, So
1: so how how so let me just return to the, the question. Are you working with schools or are you working with districts or are you working with individual teachers who decide to get on board?
2: Um, not the latter, the, the first two. So teachers. And are they,
1: are you all in, is it all in Connecticut at this point?
2: Is it, uh, no, it's not all in Connecticut. Actually, I just um, started a grant, participating in a grant, and I'm a partner in a grant in um, Marietta City Schools in Georgia. Uh-huh. Um, we've done some work in rhode island because we're close Um, we've done work in montana and california but not the embedded coaching that i'm talking about now so teachers can take courses from us and we offer structured literacy courses but the embedded coaching that i'm talking about um, has been done Primarily here in Connecticut, although one of our mentors has been working in a school in Georgia for the last few years, and she's been trying out some hybrid coaching.
1: Um, so, so you 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 have a model for um, that you've had some success with uh, that it relies heavily on coaching and it takes and it relies on a long-term commitment working over a year or two years or whatever it takes. Um, and uh, you, you manage to get the support of principals, school, school superintendents, whoever has to sign off on you know being willing to do this. Um, uh, I guess, at, and, and if, if the approach is effective, then the, the question is what prevents it from happening more widely or being used more widely or being incorporated or being used as a model that other people could use in their own settings. It would seem to me the main, one of the main limitations is teaching, training the coaches, uh, which is uh, essential. You can't just send anyone out and um, so it sounds like an expensive thing, and um, I guess my question is: I, I believe you've got the elements of a great program there, and you've been successful in it when it's been used. Uh, can you scale up? Can, can what what would it, what would it take to be able to implement? Would you recommend for implementing it on a national basis? And if so, what would it take to actually? Um, Again, it would, would wouldn't happen tomorrow, but to roll it out in a more more uh, general way.
2: Well, you you probably hit hit the nail on the head when you said, um, mentors are not easy to come by. So that is probably one of the biggest challenges is finding people that have the the knowledge, and then it's not just the knowledge of the reading and the research. that's hugely important, obviously but also it's the interpersonal skills that are needed to work with teachers yes. and understanding kind of this whole idea of helping teachers figure it out without being told this is how it's done. Cause I don't believe that there is just this one way that we acquire knowledge and learn You know, something as complicated as how to teach children to read. There's so much involved in that. Mm-hmm. So I think the mentors is, is one big obstacle. I think another challenge is honestly we're still up against methodology that is so and you know so p- much a part of districts and schools that if a school is really really um, heavily embedded in three queuing, and Pinnell, whatever it is they're number one, they're probably not going to want us to come in and get rid of that, you know, methodology. So so when you say scale it up, there are a lot of people that don't believe that they want to do that or should do that. That's right. That's that's obviously a big obstacle. Having said that, I would say that 90 percent of the schools and districts that we work in do have quite a um, A large number of teachers who do use um, those methods of teaching reading and part of the work that we do it it really is one teacher at a time, because districts may or may not be able to be able to enforce and um, require teachers to do something a certain way, in the end, teachers even though they may not feel comfortable doing this, I've had so many teachers say, "Oh, I knew what to do. Even though they told me I had to do this, I closed my door, and they're not really paying that much attention to what I'm doing. As long as,
1: yeah.
2: my, as long as my kids are well managed, they're not screaming and you yeah. know, God knows doing doing what. And of course, the data looks decent. Uh, but yeah, and that's another topic, probably. <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> yeah so um, have this
1: schools of education in for example Connecticut um, they are potential their partners as well um, are there programs for teaching coaches as within this, within this schools of education at uh, I know at, 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 at any of the colleges in other words if there's a pipeline, it's a degree program or certificate program where people are going to be training for this particular role, um, then there's the potential for um, uh, having more people be prepared. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, is any of that happening or is it really, we got to do it ourselves because we just don't have that kind of infrastructure in place yet?
2: When you say we don't have that infrastructure, I'm assuming you're referring to the Institutes of Higher Education, yeah. Yes. Okay, I would say, well, we're a small state, as you know, we only have 17 teacher prep programs here. Um, so, and I know a lot of them, and I can tell you just based on who comes out of those programs, what kind of a, you know a preparatory course of studies they've had. And I would say it varies across the board. I mean, yep. there's still plenty of schools, unfortunately, in the state that are not teaching, not teaching the science of reading substantively. The teachers know the know the words, know the terms. Um, they also have to pass the Connecticut Foundations of Reading Test, which you're familiar with. Yeah. But that doesn't guarantee that they can teach children to read, sadly. It's a start. But what h- ends up happening, and you know, Louise Spearswirling, who is um, retired now from southern Connecticut, but I'm sure you know the name, she's she's wonderful, she taught so many prospective teachers, has an amazing reputation, really does a terrific job of helping teachers understand the research, and she said it this way, which I thought was made so much sense. She said, I have these students that come, whether they're pre-service or, you know, they're getting a master's degree and I teach the content. And if anybody's teaching the content or taught the content, well, it would be Louise. Um, Then they leave the program and they go to, either they go back to their school or their district or they start in another school. But she said, it's not long before they have to default to what they did before because yeah. they're like the salmon swimming upstream. Um, if they're in a school that is very, you know, it's, it's a TC readers and writers workshop school, um, which is a lot of our schools here in Connecticut, then they really feel like, well, what am I supposed to do? I mean, this, this is what I'm given to teach reading. This is what's expected of me. They, in many cases, they're getting coached in that, but yet I just took amazing course of studies from Louise fair and I learned the science of reading from her and this is not jiving at all. So what is a teacher supposed to do with that?
1: We hear this all the time. And it is, a, it is a huge, huge issue. And, um, you know, at some point there has to be more, st- systematic change at the level of the schools of education but um, it is a practical problem that's an enormous uh, uh, and um, you know teachers end up trying to, to work around their curricula or at least you know they know um, the things that Margaret Goldberg has, has emphasized you know know the things that, that you're if you're if you're assigned to work with uh the teachers' college curriculum. Then, at least know what other things you're going to have to bring in because they're not covered there, and find a way to do it. Um, so, but but nonetheless, you're 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 expressing something we've heard. We and I think many people are familiar with. It, there's this enormous frustration in gaining knowledge and and gaining gaining confidence about. Um, effective ways to teach kids, including kids who are very difficult to reach otherwise. And then going back to a setting where there's a principal or there are other teachers or the culture just doesn't support it. And um, yeah, so if you have a solution to that one, I I feel like um, some teacher education programs that do a good job that are sort of the state of the art who you know, um, place many of their graduates in local schools, um, schools in the area. Uh, you know, e- success even in a concentrated area with only you know, uh, a couple of, of uh, schools of education involved, at least we would have the examples of things that work that we point to. It's a really tough situation though. But let, let, let's not be entirely um, uh, Pessimistic here. I mean, so um, tell us about. I think let's talk about dyslexia. So, um, how do you approach it? How do the kids vary? What are your general advice about approaching kids who are struggling to read for unknown reasons? what what are the um, g- kind of key points to to um, to to understand um what uh and, and most most important well what works what's what I clearly uh kids vary it's a dimensional condition that varies in severity causes Yeah. so think it's not going to be everything is going to work equally well for every kid or and so on so what Can you say some impart some wisdom about dealing with kids who are struggling maybe have a history of dyslexia in the family uh, who are at risk and really require we think really require some um, intense uh, attention what's going to work for those kids
2: yeah i i think um, there's a few things that i'd like to highlight one is just understanding what it what risk looks like for you know, later being identified with dyslexia. And we have to do a better job of helping our, you know, preschool teachers understand this. I mean, I listened to Nadine Gobbs, um, you know, the talk you had with her a few weeks ago or whenever it was. And I just, you know, I, I love the work that she's done. I think her screener is phenomenal. Um, The whole idea behind the screener is phenomenal. And of course, what I really appreciate about Nadine is saying loud and clear, it doesn't matter how great the screener is if we don't do something with the the information. And I could not agree with her more. We've had many conversations about it. So I I think that making sure our preschool teachers um, understand language and pre-literacy skills and in steeping children in rich language experiences and being tuned into the risk factors um, with you know the all those indicators that yes that they just so beautifully folded into that screener is would be a huge first step
1: you know if i could just interrupt for a second of course um, i i just feel like it would be so important for pre-K experiences to be focused on language and the things you use language to talk about, and also a little bit about print, you know, because yes. there's some basic things you need to know. But but essentially, you know, the kids' language experiences are varied. The things that they know about and have language to talk about varies. We know there's this variability and that it really is going to come up to to have an impact when they when they start school. So and and kids are so great at la- learning language. I mean, so so a language-rich environment in which you know kids are exposed to a wider range of expressions and a wider range of things than they might get from their immediate experience. That seems like a no-brainer to me. That seems like, I, and of course you could couple it with learning about print, learning about there's literacy activities as well. But you know, where where's if they if if I were in charge or or I could. T- Get the ear of the philanthropists, I would certainly invest in pre-Ks that are oriented around letting language wash over these kids, letting them engage in activities related to language and, and, and things. And, and, and that's the most that we could do for them because it would leave them put them in a much better position once they get to school and they're going to have to start doing all this other stuff. So I hope I was just elaborating on what you said, because oh, we, total, I think we totally agree on this. On and
2: same. Yeah, very, very much so. In fact, I started, I co-founded a preschool at a children's museum um, about nine years ago now, and it's called the Early Language and Literacy Initiative. And we have Um, a number of preschool classrooms in the Norwalk public schools as well, so it's not just a laboratory school in the museum, but also it has you know in school readiness classrooms and what I want to say about this this program that is so powerful is it brings together this whole idea of immersing kids in language experiences which No one's going to argue with with about that. But of course, what does that look like and how do you do it? Well, that's another matter. But but, you know, we have this unfortunate reading war um, that starts even in pre K where people say, oh, it's not developmentally appropriate for children to be, you know, learning the alphabet. Are you kidding me? Why is that not developmentally approach? You know, that- I don't know.
1: Where, where do these things, everyone has an opinion and then they get to like publicize it as on social media. And then uh, it, I, I don't understand where these bonkers ideas help. come from.
2: It's not going to help their social emotional development. Are you kidding me? Like, but failing what?
1: is going to really screw exactly. up their social and emotional development.
2: <laughs> exactly. Why do Why do we like to polarize things so much in education? It drives me bananas. But, but here is this wonderful, you know, experience for young, you know, young children that brings these two worlds together or even more and says, no, this, we can do this, we must do this. And so going back to your question about dyslexia, we, we know the warning signs, we can see them in young children at three, four, you know, whether it's their language um, production, there are, you know, there's so many facets to it, as you said, Mark, but if we give those children, those experiences early on, we're first of all going to take care of kids who really are unfortunately victims of dystechia, not dyslexia. And we can then put our focus on and our, you know, spend our bandwidth on the kids that really need it versus 65% or whatever the number is, depending on where you are, um, that end up needing interventions. You can't, you can't possibly do that. Well, no.
1: And, and it's 65% of the children are not dyslexica.
2: Well, that's exactly right. That's that's why I want to find those kids. And the, and it's a sticking point. I can't tell you, you know, you know what a sticking point it is, because people will say, well, you can't identify dyslexia in a four year old. I go, a- yep, you're right. I'm not dis- I'm not identifying dyslexia. I'm identifying risk. There's a huge yeah. difference between the two. Um, but we have to be careful how we say things because terminology matters. I say that all the time. It does matter greatly how we explain things and the rationale that we provide is incredibly important, especially when we're talking to the powers that be, whoever those powers that be are, they have to understand what we're, what we're saying. And, um, and that yeah, so, show da- have data to show it too.
1: So um, let me ask a general question, which is: um, So uh, say there are children who are struggling. Um, there's some family history of uh, reading or learning uh, uh, difficulties. Um, they show um, some telltale characteristics of uh, kids who 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 uh, have for whom there's probably. Um, Something's interfering, making it harder for them to learn to read. Um, Whatever approach you use to intervene with those kids, to try to help them as much as possible and keep as many of them as possible on track, do you think that they require special sorts of interventions or special sorts of activities because they probably have this sort of condition that is interfering with reading? Or do you see it as everybody's got to learn the same stuff? It's just harder for some children, and so we therefore need to focus more on the same things, but you know, in a variety of ways, or in more effective ways, or with more time on task, or other things. But it's still the same thing. Readers are readers. The things you need to learn are the same. Uh, and, and and it's not that um, the child who, who 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 may have this condition that's interfering with reading needs something completely different.
2: I think they actually, kids benefit from the same basic instruction to, to answer the question simply. Um, as far as learning to read, I, I feel like we have so much research to point to what should that look like? And it's a matter of intensity, dosage, um, you know, free, I mean, all the, all the things that we know about from tiered instruction. Yeah. Um, but- it's, not, it's not that simple. I mean, I, I think it's simple if we do it right early. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if we start in pre-K and then the minute they have that alphabetic insight, um, we hit the ground running and teach them all the things that we know are important to learning to read, you know, work on phonemic awareness, letter sound correspondences, you know, word study, reading connected text. all the things that we know matter. If we do that right, then we, we know it matters greatly. It doesn't mean there aren't going to be a subset of children who are going to need a lot of repetition, a lot more. And you know, and then we don't have to worry about all the other things that enter into the equation when kids get a little older, even second graders. I mean, they know if they can't read, they're smart enough to know that. And it just compounds. So now you're talking about a third or a fourth or a fifth grader. Now I have to bring out all the, you know, pull out all the stops and try to make magic happen. When if I had just done it, the way it should have been done early on, I would not have the same challenges that I have to face.
1: So I want to point, just underline a couple of things here because of course I totally agree with you and thought we would, but um, look, I mean the the initial assumption is reading is pretty much works the same way for everyone. It's like riding a bicycle works pretty much the same way for everybody because it's, you know, physics. Um, and um, but there are some people who, for whatever reasons, are having more difficulty than others, and um, the uh, and the things that they'll benefit from are our best efforts to find ways to get them to grasp the same things that other kids are grasping a little bit more rapidly. Now, if we do a good job, as you say, and and you know get in there early enough and and with enough intensity. Um, it obviates a lot of other problems that can otherwise arise. Right. I mean, we, we can talk about all the terrible things that happen if the kids are still behind when they're in fifth or eighth grade and how much more difficult it is to reach those kids. And now those kids are also going to have um, the social and uh, and and personal aspects of being a, a failure or a failure. The consequences of that uh the avoidance of the activity uh, th- there's so many more difficult things uh, the, as time goes on but um, uh, we we can actually keep more children from going off the rails we can keep them within the range where they are able to move ahead and it's really essential that it be done within this pretty narrow time frame and not- uh, uh, so maybe you could say something else about. Um, are we talking about just time on tasks? Are we talking about individualized instruction? Are we talking about particular programs, or are you ec- ecumenical and thinking, well, um, there's a variety of different programs that would all that are acceptable if they all focus on these important components?
2: Yeah, I I, I like to think about um, the problem solving approach versus standard treatment protocol, right? So we have some standard treatment protocols. Everyone knows Wilson, right? Wilson is based on um, structured literacy, structured language, understanding the, la- you know, the, the elements of, of language, phonology, morphology, orthography, syntax, et cetera, right? We know, we know there are a number of programs that that do that and do it well, And then there's an approach, which is Orton Gillingham is probably the most well known um, approach that doesn't have a manual that that a teacher can open up and follow lockstep. So I think there are pros and cons to each of those for a child who is whose reading difficulty, disability, dyslexia, whatever, however you want to term it is fairly straightforward. You can use a program, and and I think it gets the job done. For a child whose difficulties are more substantive and may include some other areas that need addressing, whether it's, let's say, naming speed or working memory or some other aspects of learning that make it challenging for them to do do so I think an approach works better because it has flexibility the the difference is that you have to have a teacher who knows a lot to deliver an approach well so what I usually recommend is that teachers learn a program first and use a good one and like I said there's lots of them you know there's lots of good ones out there And then they learn kind of the scope and sequence of delivering these foundational skills. They learn kind of like how a lesson would build from a small unit, like starting with phonemic awareness and then doing decoding and encoding and then getting kids to read connected text. So following a nice progression um, and they get the hang of that. And they work with a number of children who respond differently, and they understand how to adjust based on progress monitoring data. And and they just learn how to do that with lots of time on task and practice so that ultimately they could then move into delivering an approach um, that, again, as I say, has more flexibility that you can bring in other components to it. And I like that because honestly, I think a lot of the programs for dyslexia, you know, for kids with dyslexia don't have enough emphasis on the higher order thinking, the comprehension, the syntax that a lot of children struggle with. And they're not explicitly teaching those elements as, as thoroughly, I think, as need be for many students yeah. so that's where having an approach provides more, more of that flexibility
1: yeah i I'm with you totally uh you know um I'm afraid I've said this in other of these discussions, but you know the applications of the research so called the science of reading to 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 just to learning to read sometimes seemed very very narrowly focused on phonemic awareness phonics um you know print knowledge, I mean, the really low-level stuff that is essential, that's important. But um, there's, in a way that, doesn't put the pieces together in the service of what the real goal is, which is reading. And and reading, of course, involves other things, knowledge of the world, um, knowledge of the grammar of the language, and the knowledge of the ways that you can use language to communicate, all sorts of things that go beyond just being able to use print. So you know, print knowledge, print sound correspondences, all that stuff is really crucial, no question. But I think the science of reading movement, such as it is, is kind of like oh, it's just phonics for a lot of people. It's just, it's just, it's just awareness and phonics. And if the kids get that, then the rest of it is just spoken language, right? Right. Uh, and, and and that's wrong. I, I but it, wrong. Right. Not right. Wrong. But that's wrong. <laughs> but that's wrong. And 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 this 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 uh, the. I think it really is important that we have much more forward in our thinking at the front of our brains, uh, front of our awareness. Um, these parts are there to facilitate using language, using language, understanding print, understanding spoken language, writing, et cetera. And and, and that the component skills themselves are not the goal. The component skills are just the thing that you're getting along the way so that you can move on to these other things. And indeed, um, spoken language. So there are differences in kids' knowledge of spoken language, uh, even when they're monolingual, leave aside other more complicated cases. Monolingual kids, speakers of the kind of mainstream dialect, uh, big differences in their knowledge of spoken language. I get the feeling that people think that once the kids start school, start school, you can just focus on the print part because spoken language, you know, we don't have to. That's all. That's spoken language is taken care of, uh, as opposed to no spoken language is going to continue to develop. And for some of these kids, they're way behind. And so, uh, you know, it's it's an integration of print knowledge and spoken language all the way. Exactly. And I, I guess I'm really concerned about uh, a lot of attention to the mechanics because there was so little of it before, right? It's kind of overcompensation for what happened before. Maybe we can get more centered in a way that says, look, this stuff is important, but it's, on, it's the thing that you're doing to get, get the child to um, the point where they're um, reading and, and, and comprehending and, and, and starting to write. So I'm afraid there's too much uh, emphasis on just the code and not enough about the reading.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. I agree, and that language, like you said, that spoken language. We have, you know, our reading wheel where we put oral language in the middle, because it is so foundational and, you know, easy to. Oh, thank you, Molly. Uh, there it is. Um, it's so foundational to reading and writing, and, you know, when you think about children with dyslexia, they're known for having good language comprehension skills, and yet. Um, we know that dyslexia is a language-based learning disability, so it impacts language. And you can see it. All those years that I worked with, with kids um, with dyslexia, you could see that play out in different ways. And that just spoke volumes to me about how important it is that we're having these conversations and that we're teaching teachers about the centrality of language in the classroom. Like it has to be Front and center, yeah. and and yet, you know, in many cases, administrators want to walk into a classroom and, and see a quiet classroom, a classroom <laughs> that's well managed. I'm like, oh my no, god, we want no. them talking.
1: Uh, this is just make, makes me insane. So you know, <laughs> children learn la- spoken language, primarily through use and and through through having good models that they like teachers, who they they interact with and then you go to these schools where there's such a emphasis placed on order, yeah, that you know, the children's opportunities to just talk are 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 restricted and 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 um, this is a this is appalling. This is appalling to me. The, here you have these kids who are already different in terms of their knowledge of spoken language. School might be one of the places where they get exposed to you know things that they might not have gotten exposed to yet. They might start using them, interacting with people who who they can learn from. And then we're going to have silent lunch, or you know, we're going to have kids who will only talk when when they're asked to, to speak. And uh, we.
0: Well, I, yeah, I know. I
1: know this isn't everywhere. It's. It is in. It, it is a problem in in many in many places.
0: Yeah. I have two thoughts just related to things we've been talking about. One is that related to this wheel. I think is relates to what Mark was talking about earlier of that we can't just focus on the like the phonemic awareness piece or the phonics piece. I like that in the wheel. Also, we've got syntax. We've got vocabulary. They're all at this. The text comprehension. They're all at the same level of importance. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really nice thing about this we all the other thing that mark was just making me think about with the silent lunch relating back like way earlier in the conversation of thinking about preschool that that's like i think some of the fear about preschool is we don't want it to become too academic we don't want to you know they're young they should play they should have fun um but what a great opportunity and time to do that kind of fun and play with the oral language and to Think about the world knowledge and the oral language, and that the, those are important building blocks and can be, yeah, a fun preschool experience where it's not a silent classroom, but you're setting them up for success.
1: I think so. Oh,
2: so important.
0: So, important.
1: um, so, um, I, I, are you saying that, would you say, you know, more and more people are sort of um, catching on to this body of knowledge, which really kind of says some important things about kids early experience, for example, with language and understanding the world. And then their transition into reading where, you know, print is related to spoken language and they influence one another and, and uh, other, other things that need to keep developing over time. Um, there, there seems to be increasing knowledge shared knowledge about this it's not universal and and people have their own uh, takes on these things but nonetheless there's growth in 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 understanding of these 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 issues or in an appreciation of these issues so now, things aren't going to change overnight but do, do you see us on a path where um, more and more of these concepts more and more of these findings will be incorporated in ways that are, allow more and more kids to be effective and teachers to be effective as well uh, or or are we've all reached come up against the institutional barriers so um what 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 are we going to make it or is is reading going to become sort of a you know uh an elite skill something that's just you know for the for the uh for the uh, the advanced academic kinds of people and, and is, is of less importance to the general population. How are we doing? I, you've been doing this a long time and been successful in, 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 in the schools where you've worked and in the teachers you've worked with. How are we doing? Are you seeing any change in momentum here? Um, and and you know every action has an equal and opposite reaction. There's also pushback. So yeah. what do you think we could do that would move things forward even more?
2: Well, so to answer part 1, I am an optimistic person so I'm I'm going to go with we're 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 making headway. We're making progress. I think the the focus on the science of reading has mostly been positive, although certainly it's gotten a lot of pushback and I think there's some um, confusion about what that is and what it should look like, and certainly the translation of it is is paramount. And because that's hard to do, um, I think it's, it's just the challenge that we have to keep pushing on and, and finding evidence for what should it look like, like funding research studies that actually do a good job of figuring out what it should look like because we still, I don't think, have a lot of uh, a lot of good research to point us toward that, and that is really, really important. We we don't have a minute to waste at this point in time. Um, our children's lives, you know, are too important. I would say, you know, if you ask me what what we could do um, to make a difference, I think there's a couple things. Definitely higher ed. Um, and the work that that Kelly Butler's doing and, and did in Mississippi and now is spearheading in Alabama and multi-state initiative is phenomenal. I think you know that is the kind of work that has to happen across the country in every state, in every teacher prep program. We have to get a laser focus on what you know, how are we teaching reading, And are we doing it at, you know, well, and if we're not, it has to change. So teacher- (laughs) That
1: that research, uh, sorry, that particular work being um, the result of a cooperation between private philanthropy and public funds. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I mean, the model there was for for Mississippi and now for other states that uh, Kelly's working with is Where's the money come from? Well, some of it is coming from the states, some of it is coming from interested.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that's Sorry, when, when it comes from different places, I think all the better because everybody's got some skin in the game. And the more mm-hmm. skin in the game, the better the result. Um, as far as I'm concerned, in my experience. Um, the other the other thing I, I want to also say is we have to do a better job training our administrators um our superintendents our principals our curriculum directors you know i i wrote a piece for um idea examiner not too long ago and and i did a little bit of research on what do administrators training that like I know, I know. They learn a whole bunch of stuff, but they learn zero about teaching reading. And so if you are a middle school science teacher or a high school PE teacher, and a lot of those people go into they want to be, they want to be principals or superintendents or what have you, I just, I just so In my heart, know how important it is that these that these leaders know about the science of reading, and not only know about it, value it, and make sure that their teachers know it.
1: So, I I think that is one of the next frontiers, and we're aware that we need to be going to principals' organizations and superintendents' organizations and um, dealing, trying to to make get some breakthrough there. The the other thing you mentioned though was. You know, one of the things is that kids need enough opportunities to learn, enough time to learn the things they need to know. And, you know, in the early years, there's a short, narrow window where we really want them to get, have acquired some um, basic, you know, foundational sorts of skills. Well, you mentioned science teachers or math teachers. I mean, the idea that reading instruction or learning about reading is something that's also going on when you're doing all these other kinds of uh, subjects, seems to be really important. And that means because they involve language too. And okay. uh, they involve reading too. Well, that means that everybody's got to know something about how language works, how reading works, and what the continuing, how how they continue to develop and where the, the challenges arise uh, for, for kids. Um, uh, so that there's more reading, uh, learning about learning to read during the day, during the school day, not just during a, a, a block. Um, do you know any superintendents? Were you able to? So, um, I've met superintendents. I've I've i I've been to states where they're really trying to get everybody in the same room, and yes. um, it's it's possible. It's better. It it's it's easier in a smaller state. It actually,
2: is. it's way easier. Actually, the woman that is the executive director of the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendents um, is someone I've known and worked with for years. She was. Um, you know, a reading teacher. Then she was a curriculum director. Then she became a superintendent. Then she was at the State Department as the associate commissioner, and she's um, she's wonderful. Now she was steeped in whole language um, in her early career, but she valued the research, and she said, "No, this is really important," and she made it her business to ensure that wherever she went, that it was incorporated into her teachers, you know, professional development experiences. And now, you know, she's speaking to other superintendents, I, It's but it really has to get put into the system. It's not enough to say to superintendents, this is important. I think it has to become part of um, their programs, their, yeah. you know, their certification programs. And, yeah. uh, yeah. When do you think we have to start calling out
1: universities for not having moved fast enough? I mean, no. we are, I, we I, are, I, I but know. but essentially, you know, either change or you're gonna be compelled to change because um, if you're a state university, then the state overseers will, um, will, will, will mandate that you change your programs. And in, in other words, you know, Academics don't like being told what to do, but in the case of um, a system that has just not been willing to change it's, for it's, so long, yeah,
2: for there so has long. to be
1: pressure from someplace yeah, else.
2: There has to be. I don't know. I, I, yeah, I don't know. Like one, I don't know if, if you ever met Judy Bursch, um, but anyway, she told me she was at teacher's college and yeah. God, God bless her, you know, because um, she was like a lone ranger there. And she said higher education is the last bastion of feudalism. And I and I quote her often. I <laughs> think that is, she said, you think K-12 is is whatever, behind the times. They have nothing on higher education. And I, I've had some experience. You have had a whole lot more than I have. But Neither I do, either. but I do go back honestly to the work that Kelly's doing. Um, and the multi-state initiative. So, taking what they did in Mississippi, looking very closely at course syllabi, but more than that, interviewing professors and, you know, interviewing candidates um, about what they've learned. Looking at really getting under the hood and looking at all the working parts because that's what you have to do. Um, yeah. And and just like I said, doing that across across the United States, one state at a time, one teacher prep program at a time. And if we do that and we're really focused and, and diligent about that, and like you said, finding our partners for funding, I think I think we can make the, the changes that are necessary. Otherwise, we're just putting a Band-Aid on a huge problem and teachers are already burdened with incredible uh, load, um, especially now with you know post COVID, you know gaps. I I, it's just not fair to them to not give them the preparation that they deserve right from the get go.
1: This is one of my, my my main themes really that the narrative around these changes needs to t- to change. It's not punitive. It's not no. calling people out for failures. It's trying to say. We need to give teachers all the tools they can make use of, so that they can succeed. And and that that um, reforms are not coming about because they're they're not they're not meant as criticism. They're meant as there's things that we could be doing that would be helpful. That could exactly. be helpful to teachers and ultimately to their students. The, the narrative that says anytime you criticize current packages, you're, 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 criticizing uh, your anti-teacher, I think, really, really has to change. What's anti-teacher is withholding things that would make their jobs easier and, and make allow them to be more successful with more kids. That that's really not.
2: That's you're right. I, I also think that we have to um elevate the status of the teacher um like they do in other parts of the world um i i feel so strongly that they should be you know have the same status as a doctor um and they also likewise need to have substantive training so yes the fact that they are supposed to know everything they need to know after four years is crazy. Um, they need at least five, maybe six years, whatever it is that to, to get the job done. And we're not giving them that,
1: right? Now, I, I think one little lever there would be if um, we raise some money um, to uh, underwrite those people's educations. That is, so if someone does a five year undergraduate program leading to, you know, a, a really, a, a great undergraduate program that happens to take a little bit longer uh let's make sure that those people don't have to pay for it so you know let's raise the money to bring in people who are uh, to and uh pay their tuition provide the scholarships and fellowships make it so that they um can um it doesn't come at personal cost to them we and and moreover we use this as bait we use the fact that we're going to pay for your education as long as you go into the field for five years, uh, 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 something that's attractive, that brings people in and and that attracts them to programs that might take a little bit longer, might be a little bit more rigorous, but also will leave them much better situated to succeed. So I'd like to see some, some much bigger fellowship programs, scholarship programs for people to enter quality teacher preparation programs. And um, that seems like a win for everybody.
2: I do too. I think it's it's a very wise investment. And we have to think about the investments um, that we're making to get the outcomes that we we know we need.
1: Well, do we have any questions from the field? Do we have any parting sense of things that we should be that we've things we've overlooked or Maybe Margie just has final kinds of observations. Mar- Molly, where are we?
0: I think we've covered a lot of good things. I haven't seen a lot of questions coming through.
1: Someone has posted something about a, a book about districts that succeeds, which um, sounds really interesting. I didn't know about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, um, I'm sure Margie will be will be posting references. Um, yes. Um, to to. To your program and to your to your work and um, other useful things. Um, thanks for everything that you do. It's 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 just astonishing that you walked into Isabel Liverman's classroom and and um, and have carried the work and the ideas forward for for the, for these decades. And I'm sure it's made a lot of difference for a lot of kids and a lot of families. So
2: thanks for what you do. Oh, thank you, Mark. I it's, you know, it's a vocation for sure. And I, and I feel very blessed to, to be able to do the work. I have an amazing team. I could not do it without them. And I just wish I had more. I, I always say I need to clone my mentors because they're phenomenal. Um, yeah. I, I will say one, one final thing that I didn't mention. And that is you know, what we try to do is build capacity in the districts and schools where we work. And what does that mean? If I have a mentor going into um, a school for a year or two years, in some cases, our mentors have been there three or four years because there are lots of teachers that need to be um, coached. But the only way that our work actually is sustained is if we have people in, you know, inside those schools who carry our work forward, and you know, in some cases we've had some good success with that. And I've really implored the superintendents, um, particularly because they're the top top gun, um, but the principals too, to just say, if you have people internally that have the capacity and the and you know the qualities to become an internal coach. We would love to work with them and, you know, build capacity through them and with them. And that's really, really important. It gets back to a question you asked earlier, Mark, about are these people, you know, do teachers or can teachers in our state and others get a degree or a certificate in coaching? You know, yeah. it's called different things in different places, but yeah. they can, but the bottom line is they have to be given... The, the permission, the time, um, the training, all the things that we know matter once they get into those schools. And that's you know, that's the work that we've tried to do to advance um, the impact that you know that we have.
1: I think that is I, I I that that is such a crucial element. Maybe maybe it is the crucial element to, to success I think, you know, and and I think it was characteristic of what was happening in Mississippi. You know, there were coaches, the teachers knew the coaches, the coaches were well-prepared. There was an ongoing commitment to the schools. That alone, you know, was, was, I think, of course we don't know scientifically what what the most important elements of those, that particular program was, but that's likely to have been really a key, key element. And I think it's, it's exactly consistent with what you're saying.
2: Yeah. Well, again, I, I really appreciated having a chance to talk to the two of you and, and uh, see other participants. And I know hopefully people will join later uh, when it's more convenient time. Um, yeah.
1: Yes, we have this new feature where we're actually um, answering questions that are posted in the chat. and. Um, writing out answers and posting them later. So there's even more opportunity to um, have this continue. Great. So thanks to everybody and thanks to you, especially Margie. Thanks to you,
2: Molly.
0: Yes, thanks for joining us, Margie. Thanks for joining us. And Maybe we'll see you all next week. Stay well, everyone. Thanks for listening to this reading meeting recording. You can find more information about past and future reading meetings on our website. We hope you'll join us for future meetings.